Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with Dr. Charles Chuck Edwards, author of Much Abides, Survival Guide for Aging Lives. When a hand tremor forced successful heart surgeon Chuck Edwards to reevaluate his career, he concluded that he wasn't ready to give up being a doctor. He loved helping patients too much. But what could he do when he could no longer do what he had done at a high level for so many years? He could reinvent himself, that's what. The forces of change opened an interest for Chuck, almost an obsession, with aging that formed in his mind as he thought back to how he and his family struggled to preserve dignity first for their father, a World War II veteran who was wounded on D-Day on Omaha Beach, who suffered dementia at the end of his life, and then his mother, who suffered from Alzheimer's disease before she died. And at age 65, Chuck decided to go back to school at Johns Hopkins to study the disease for opening the memory and movement Charlotte that has grown to help more than 1,200 patients and 3,200 caregivers. This book tells Chuck's story and covers all aspects of aging, time left, what is under one's control, factors that protect, and factors that undermine our goals. Examples of successful aging are presented. A major theme is personal narrative and how one's story of valued has the potential to change behavior and be the bedrock for aging with grace and purpose. Chuck, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And congratulations on the book. Well, I appreciate that. 
Yeah. Now, you know, talk about our connection just a little bit. You and I met uh, when you were caring for my father, Ham Wade, and uh, in all these various meetings we had uh, when I was coming to the memory center, the memory and movement center with, with him. Um, at one of those meetings, I remember you saying, you know, Landis, I, I want to write a book. And uh, what, what do I, what do I do? And so I guess my question is, I think that was back in the fall of 2018. I just launched the podcast and you said, I want to write a book. And so Chuck, why did you want to write a book? Well, I just remember that day that you and I were talking and, uh, and I said, uh, you know, I might uh, want to get on that podcast. And you said, you can't get on the podcast until you've written a book. So, <laughs> exactly. So I, so I had to. Uh, so that, that's that's great. The first the first author who person who's ever written a book just to get on my podcast. I love that. <laughs> that's it. Uh, it was it was the stimulus. Um, you know, as I said in the first line, it was almost like um, that I had to write the book. The um, these thoughts were in my brain. And um, it causes a certain amount of anxiety. And so I, as I wrote, um, a lot of angst uh, and uh, anxiety was, uh, um, was expelled. And so I, um, and there were several themes that came together uh, that as I wrote, the themes came together uh, by themselves. Uh, and sometimes I would have to kind of sit back and let them go. Um, and not not force it, um, but um, it, it was the experience that I've that I had um, late in life, having to reinvent myself, as you you said, and then how has that shown me um, about aging, uh, and uh, what are the things that enhance that, and what are the things that undermine it? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. So, Chuck, in your epigraph, you dedicate this book to your patients and their families for what they have taught you and continue to teach you about what the human spirit looks like at its best. I see people, um, and actually in my career when I was doing heart surgery, and then especially in uh, with the dementia uh, families and patients, I see people um, when they're at the maximum stress in their life, when they have to find inner strength to kind of match up to what life is demanding of them. And I think that, you know, you and I formed a bond because um, we both loved your father uh, and your mother. Uh, uh, talk about a steel magnolia. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so I, I get very close to these families and I, I saw your dad struggle, um, saw him have to retire. And then, you know, we went through all those things and you get nothing but um, respect and, and admiration for what they can do. And that's what I meant when I said the human spirit at its best. Well, it was a comfort to our family and it, it was, it was so nice. And I, I've thanked you before, but I want to thank you again for what you did. You, you stood with us, uh, you know, at those office visits, but also at the very end when my dad was in the hospital, you came by and, and, and talked us through uh, the situation. And um, so you, you are caring not only for, uh, the individual who's going through the dementia or the Alzheimer's. But a lot of what you do at the Memory Movement Center is about caring for the caregiver, right? Yeah, as we as the disease progresses, we can't help the patient uh, without going through the, the caregiver and the families. Uh, and at the end, you know, it's all about the, um, the, 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 the families. And so... Um, 
Yeah, uh, that's a, an equal part of our emphasis. And we're going to talk about a little bit of that before the episode's out here. But but first, uh, because this is uh, a podcast about books and about stories, you, you did, and I hinted at it in the beginning of the intro here, about how this uh, one of the themes here is personal narrative and how one's story uh, comes into play. Well, this book is really two stories. It's uh, first your story, Chuck, um, how you went from a successful cardiac surgeon to having a decision to make at around age 65. You got a tremor. That's not a good thing for, for a surgeon, right, to have a tremor. Uh, why not just retire? Why go back to school? Talk a little bit about your story because you talk about it in the book. Well, one of the things for me um, at that point was um, the idea that I wouldn't have to, that wouldn't be able to do surgery uh, anymore. And, you know, it never was, it never got to a disability. It never got to affect my um, outcome of an operation or my ability to do it. But it was just a sign to me that I wasn't going to, I didn't want to be that old man in there shaking. I had always been very good with my eyes and my hands and and so, um, but that wasn't, that wasn't the thing that was as the scary part for me. Um, the part that was scary um, was uh, that connection that I had to my patients, being able to hear their stories, figure out what was wrong with them, and then at least help them through that. Sometimes you can fix it, sometimes you can't. Um, and when I was confronted with the fact that I wouldn't be in that sphere anymore around sick people, that's when I, um, I had the sort of, um, I had to come up with a new gig. I had to, I had to reinvent myself and, uh, and it took a while for me to figure it out. Um, well, one of the things you talk to uh, patients and their caregivers about uh, is this idea. And we're going to be doing this on the Patreon channel separately listeners where Chuck and I are going to do a deep dive <laughs> on, uh, you know, transitions and, you know, that second career in life. But, but uh, Chuck, you're not quite to that, what I would call that abrupt change, because you went from being a physician in, in one category to being a physician in another. And you're going to have a choice to make at some point in time as well, like we all do, uh, about when you're going to start your podcast or whatever else you're going to do in life. But, but this idea of going from, you know, the, the, surgeon to what you were putting together, uh, no one had done that. No one had done it as, as deeply as you had. And you were going to have to go back to school and you had to talk to your wife. You had to talk to your friends. You, what were they telling you when you were telling them at age 65, hey, I got this idea. I'm going to go back and do this thing. Well, I didn't I didn't um, tell too many of my friends. I thought that they would, they would <laughs> put, me, put me in the nut house. I, think. But, uh, um, I did talk to Mary about it. And um, you know, uh, one of the funny parts, I, I always threatened that uh, she made me sign a um, sort of an affidavit uh, when I did that. Um, and just when we kicked off the Memory and Movement Center, she had in there the amount of money that was the maximum amount that we were going to be able to spend. And she told me at the very bottom that divorces are expensive <laughs> and you must follow these rules. Uh, uh, that, went, that went, but, um, I, you know, at first, I think that um, she she guided me on the fact that I've always felt like that um, that uh, in medicine, all compassion and caring about people has to begin with competence. You've got to have a skill in order to impact other people's lives. And 
she was the one that reminded me. She says, you know, these families have people to hug them and you don't have any, any expertise in this area at all. You, re you remember how we struggled to get help for your mom and dad. And um, so I don't see that this is a good idea at all. Um, I don't see how you're going to be able to do it or that you should do it without any expertise. And that was the trigger when I sat down and wrote that letter to the, to the, uh, um, to Hopkins and to Duke and to those other institutions. Um, and I think I told you this, uh, the first line of that uh, letter said, uh, uh, when a 65-year-old cardiac surgeon applies for a dementia fellowship, it prompts the question, shouldn't he be in the clinic rather than starting it? <laughs> And that's has, he for, has, he forgotten, has he forgotten where he, where he is? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, well, let's talk about the book cover and, and the title for a moment. Um, first of all, the title, Much Abides, A Survival Guide for Aging Lives. Much Abides comes from uh, uh, Tennyson's poem, uh, Though Much is Taken, Much Abides from Ulysses. Uh, mm -hmm. You said in the book you were taken with that idea. And as it applies to your practice and how you hit help, just talk about what that means to you, Though Much is Taken much abides. Well, the last, the last three or four stanzas of uh, Tennyson's poem, Ulysses, are about Odysseus or Ulysses at the end of his life, and he's come back, um, and uh, he is uh, deciding what he wants to do. Uh, he's lost. He's, you know, fought in the and the Greek War, um, in the Iliad, and then he uh, has made his way back home, um, and um, he's with his family, and then all of a sudden decides, I don't know if this is going to be enough. And th those four stanzas are the most profound words on aging uh, that that I've ever found. Um, when I looked up, uh, he was 23 years old when he wrote it, so I don't know, which really surprised me. Uh, but they always touched me. Um, and the much, much is lost, but much abides means that if we are aware of the phase of life that we're in, we're late, um, but we have things that are left that only we, only we know and that wisdom has allowed us to have this perspective. And one of the, the, um, the, the forces that I wanted to to really create or to expose is that this wisdom, it can't be wasted. Uh, we've worked hard. We've been beat up. Just like I said about, you know, Mike Tyson said that everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth. So when you get hit in the mouth a couple of times, it gives you wisdom and you, and you develop a sense for how you can be um, a factor in other people's lives. And uh, Odysseus, uh, or Ulysses, um, he says that uh, he wants to uh, sail to the end of the western uh, skies and uh, possibly to see Achilles, who we knew. And he talked about men who had walked with gods, and it just is chilling. Um, and so uh, that's where the Much Abides came from. Um, yeah, and, and immediately after that, you have the prologue, and you talk about you know the first line of the book, Aging is the ultimate human challenge. And then you say in that same prologue, how does one not mourn what is lost, but make a life out of what is left? That is what this book is about. And that's so um, it's so important. It, it kind of sneaks up on you, right? I mean, 
And then suddenly people feel at a certain age that if they can't do the things they're so confident at, they've done all their lives that, you know, they've lost something, you know, so they're mourning about it. And then the question becomes, as you say, what's left? Yeah. And, and, you know, one of those things I've seen a lot of, of um, my colleagues and, and some of my, my patients who are early on, um, and they might have been really good at something in their life. A lot of times it's around sports. They might have been a great tennis player or a great golfer or whatever. And you say, oh, how's your golf game? And they say, well, I don't play anymore because, you know, I'm just not any good at it. And and one of the reasons why I, uh, you know, did the paintings in the book is I've been fooling around with paintings. I'm, I'm not a great artist. Um, I really I love doing it. But I wanted I wanted it to be an example of, of if you're not, just because you're not good at it, if it gives you pleasure, you need to do it. Um, because if not, you're going to sit around and mourn the loss of everything you had, and you're not going to have a lot you know, going for you going forward. Um, so uh, that was an example of, of you know, people looking at that saying, <laughs> I had a friend of mine yesterday, um, I was having lunch with him. He said, I read your book. And he said, I wasn't too impressed with the art, but I thought the book was okay. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, that's just the point, I guess. Yeah. So, well, you remember uh, with, with my father, he didn't retire until, you know, late 80s, not long before he passed away. And uh, one of the things he would say, and probably he said it to you too, is I just don't know what I will do if I don't go into the office. And how many times have you heard that, Chuck? A lot, and especially uh, lawyers are the worst. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that's they why I'm, that's why I'm a recovering trial lawyer now. I'm, I'm in that phase, you know, where I'm. <laughs> I love that recovery. Uh, yeah. but, um, lawyers uh, of all of the people that I deal with, um, uh, of the, all the vocations, uh, the two that are the worst are Catholic priests and lawyers. Okay. I don't know what they have in common, uh, but uh are you saying are you saying we're just not that creative? We only know how to do one thing, and we just can't well, figure out. <laughs> it's I, you know it's kind of like uh, you know you grew up in a uh, you know a, a family of lawyers, and um, doctors are like this, but their skills run out. Um, you know, especially surgeons. Surgery is a young man's business. You're standing there, especially doing cardiac surgery, sometimes for eight nine hours in a, in a day, and it's a young man's business. Um, and and people have to realize that their skills erode. But, you know, wisdom and lawyers, um, it, they feel like they're, they're getting smarter. Now, <laughs> no, <laughs> they are. we don't have time to cover that whole thing, Chuck. We only got 30 minutes here, so we can't really get, <laughs> I'll, I'll back off. I'll back off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's do this. We'd like to have on, on the podcast uh, a reading uh, where authors give voice to the written words. You, you've got a little section early in the book you're going to read for us that uh, – uh, t- tell us a sort of, um, you know, you've made the decision to go to school again at age 65. You've been accepted to the program and you're going to pick it up when you arrive uh, in, in Baltimore. Okay. Um, I arrived in Baltimore to start what was termed a practicum. I met with my principal mentors, Paul Rosenberg and Costas Leketos, and was given the ground rules. This was an unusual situation for Johns Hopkins never having accepted someone my age under these circumstances. They were intrigued with the possibility of retraining older physicians to care for the projected increase in patients with memory loss. It was explained to me that I would be accepted for up to six months 
and no credit would be offered. I would be supervised by staff and fellows and never have direct patient care responsibility. On the positive side, I would have access to all clinics, conferences, and lectures. A specific curriculum would be developed to prepare me for starting a memory center in Charlotte. On my ID, I was identified as a psychiatric observer, whatever that is. From that moment on, I knew I would need humility and perseverance to survive. There were times, especially early, that I doubted this was possible. I desperately wanted to come home. One week earlier, I had direct responsibility for the outcomes of complex cardiac operations. Now that was gone. The first person assigned to me at the psychiatric unit may have had the best read on the situation. She was a thin lady in her early 60s, lying in bed in the fetal position, repeating the word bullshit over and over. I thought at the time that this might be some sort of sign for me. I was humbled, but I persevered. The psychiatric fellows adopted me as a project. Days were spent in the clinic attending lectures and conferences. Evenings were for reading and following up on what I was exposed to that day. The risk of failure became a source of energy. Slowly, it began to sink in. The idea that this outrageous leap might be possible and result in the expertise to impact lives back home began to take shape. One Johns Hopkins clinic that was especially valuable was Memory Clinic with Dr. Peter Ravens. Dr. Ravens co-wrote with Nancy Mace the Dementia Bible, The 36-Hour Day, which has become the gold standard for caregivers. I asked him one day if he thought I could pull this off and become competent in memory care. He said, yes, but with one reservation. Heart surgeons are used to fixing things. You are not going to fix anything in this new career. Heart surgeons are used to having problems, big problems, presented to them, and they judge their effectiveness and worth by fixing those problems. Listening to patients is not a skill possessed by many heart surgeons. In geriatric psychiatry, listening is crucial to effectiveness. Listening to all those patient stories over the years gave me a head start. I carry that advice with me every day. After four months, Dr. Rosenberg said it was time for me to go home. You have worked hard and come a long way. Now is the time to return to Charlotte, start your clinic, and let the real teachers, the patients and families, take over your education. To the physicians and staff at Johns Hopkins who took time to prepare and encourage me, I am grateful beyond measure. The patients and families under our care in Charlotte, thank you as well. After brief flirtations failed rotations with the two healthcare systems in our city, it became clear that if a memory center was going to be done right, it would have to be nonprofit and it would have to be independent. My wife, Mary, and I found 900 square feet of office space, upfitted it from flea markets, and opened on December 13, 2013. We had no patients, minimal funding, and no idea what would happen. What happened was that the phone started ringing and has never stopped. Yeah, thank you, Chuck. And also what happened was um, you expanded this practice and you added other uh, expertise to the practice. Um, um, and you're, you've now got uh, quite a staff that helps people in the area. Well, one of the things that happened, Landis, was that um, 
um, we started seeing a, um, a, a lot of patients with Parkinson's and we made the diagnosis of Parkinson's on lots of patients. And we shared those patients uh, with um, the head of neuroscience uh, at um, uh, CMC at the time, Carolina's Medical Center, now Atrium, uh, who was uh, Sanjay Iyer. And um, we had so many patients together. Um, we did the non-movement, he did the movement, and it was, it was really um, a very effective approach to all this. And um, one day he called me on the phone and he said, um, I, I love what you guys are doing. I want to come work with you. And so he came over and just took his psyche, uh, his uh, Parkinson's practice and um, just folded it into our practice. And then we hired a geriatric psychiatrist from Hopkins who came and spent a year with us. And um, so we had the memory, movement, and mood, and we're going to continue uh, with those three things. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk, just touch on briefly with some time we got left is you, you talk in the book about strategies to compensate for the effect of aging, and you, you lay out some of the aspects of aging. And the, the, the nice thing about this book, in addition to discussing the science, you provide examples and one of the things I was heartened to see is that forgetting names is not the end of the world. <laughs> I mean, can you just mention that? Because it comes up a lot, right? Yeah, actually, uh, every week in the, uh, <laughs> every week we have people come in and say, you know, I'm losing it and uh, I can't remember names. Uh, there are two things that, that, don't, uh, that I'm, I don't care about as far as um, uh, memory is concerned. One is names and one is technology. Um, and, they, and they fit into a... A sort of a, a similar category in that there's a thing called uh, fluid intelligence, and fluid intelligence is our IQs, and um, and what we uh, what we instinctively use in our brains to solve problems. There's a flip kind of intelligence that's related to wisdom, and um, names and technology come under fluid intelligence, and it declines from the time that we're 28 years old. Now, the wisdom increases throughout, uh, and we can test for it. Um, so uh, so I, I always make the point, names don't matter to me. Um, I remember my mom and dad would be having dinner, and um, my father would, um, someone would come into the dining room or in, into a restaurant or, you know, some club or something, and He'd say to my mother, Norma, uh, who's that guy? I know him. And she'd say, Chuck, I, I really don't know who he is. And he'd say, no, look, I think I had a business association with him, and it would ruin his dinner. And then after it was over, the guy would come over, and you'd realize that guy didn't know his name either. And that happens in every one of the dining rooms in, in this city uh, that people, uh, and you know whether or not someone knows your name, um, by how loud he says hello. If he says it really loud and very um, um, spirited, then you know he has no idea what your name is, okay? Yeah, and you offer some techniques for, you know, the patients about how to address some of the sort of the natural things that occur with, with aging. And uh, you mentioned things like paying attention, slowing down, working shorter intervals, setting realistic goals and that kind of thing. But you also speak to the caregiver, as I said earlier, and, and I'd like you just to talk briefly about this concept of coming closer, because I remember that when you were counseling us on how to care for 
uh, for my father um, and how that coming closer actually helps the patient? Well, coming closer is a technique that um, that we developed uh, um, here at uh, Memory Movement Charlotte about um, what does a caregiver do in order to recruit the resources to address uh, or to live up to the demands that the patient is making on them. And what we do is we systematically go through all aspects of what their resources are, family members, friends, um, uh, people that have been in their life that can come in and, and, and help with nursing. And, and so we, we lay all that out. And, um, and also part of uh, taking charge is people say, I really want to help. You know, like your dad, um, uh, Ham, um, there, were, there were so many people that loved and respected him that all Julia had to do was to ask someone um, to do something. They wanted to do it. They wanted to come by and take him to, um, uh, to play golf or they wanted to, to be involved with, you know, going to Blackhawk Hardware or whatever it was. And, um, and so Take Charge is also specifically asking people to do a certain thing. Someone says, I really want to help. And you say, Wednesday, 12 to 2, please come by every Wednesday or every other Wednesday. Dad would want to see you and it would be a great time. And that would give then the caregiver, the principal caregiver, a time to do something else. So not only is it that catalog of all the resources, but it's the um, it's the charge of uh, specifically asking for specific times or uh, specific interventions. Yeah, and I also recall that, that within this realm of coming closer is the idea that uh, it's not about being right. And so you have to sort of train yourself a little bit uh, when someone becomes fixated who's got dementia or you know, they, they think a certain thing is happening a certain way to let it go. You as the caregiver don't have to be right. It doesn't matter whether it happened on Tuesday or Wednesday or, or whenever, or whether the sky is blue or green or yellow, uh, you can move beyond that by acknowledging and moving to the next thing. Right. And that's a very important point. And actually uh, that's one thing that you learned through the thing, you know, at the beginning, you were trying to help your mom and dad stay on right. course. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, then, and then when you got it, Um, for me I had to learn that the hard way um, because I thought um, especially with my dad I thought that there was therapeutic value in correcting him and of course there's not Um, if he thinks it's Wednesday and um, or he has a delusion and I go directly at it and say dad that's ridiculous you know all I'm going to do is get anger and I'm going to get him feeling diminished about himself so except for safety issues, 95% of the time, we don't correct the patients if they have a misconception. And the other piece of this is dignity. And that's the hard part because when my dad can no longer drive, and that's some, something you deal with a lot in patients who, when they lose their keys, uh, they feel less uh, perhaps than they did before because they lose some of their independence. And this idea of losing the independence, it's not as, as, as if you can say, uh, just don't worry about it because, you know, it is something important, right? It's a a big change for them to be dependent on other people. So how do you counsel caregivers in those circumstances to help preserve the dignity of the patient? That was probably the hardest thing that I I ever 
had to do the day I had to go over and take my dad's keys away. Uh, my son went with me and um, um, I, I've, uh, I've written a, a, a skit on this and this is in our caregiver manual, but um, I had to, I had to, he said, you know, you have no right to come in here and take my keys away. And I had to, um, I had to say, dad, um, you were the one that taught me um, to always um, follow the truth and to not back down. And um, I know that you had to do this for your father. And I have to tell you, you can't drive anymore. Um, and um, he, he fought me for a little while. And then uh, he realized um, he was still, he still had insight at that point. And then he handed me his keys. He was not happy about it. And then we were driving home um, and my son, I, I was crying, um, he was crying, and um, my dad was crying, it was a mess. And uh, my son said to me, he said, uh, dad, I hope you'll be as much of a man as Grampy was when I take your keys away. And I said to him, you little bastard, you're never taking my keys away. <laughs> yeah, do what I say, not what I, not how I act. Kind of uh, oh, God, I'm not looking forward to that day, but it's coming, I know. Yeah. Well, uh, just quickly, um, a little bit about the writing life, because uh, listeners, we're going to jump over just in just a moment to our Patreon channel at patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is where we do extra episodes uh, with our guest uh, on the craft or business of writing and uh it's in sort of thanks for those of you who help us help authors give voice to the written words. And you can jump over there after this because we're going to be diving deeper into this topic of transitions and reading and writing and the kind of things that are good for you as you age and maybe dive into the science a little bit. But Chuck, before we do that, uh, challenges of writing a book. You'd never written a book. You wanted to do this because you had to get on Charlotte Rouge's podcast. I know that's the reason, right? <laughs> that was the reason. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, what did you figure out? Because um, I've found that when I either prepare for a presentation or I write something, I learn things. Uh, did you take lessons away from this whole project? Not just the lessons of trying to put together this book, which comes with its own learning curve, but just about um, certain things about yourself and about your practice and about life that have helped you help patients since writing this book? Um, absolutely. Um, I think that any time that you have to um, to step back and look at what works and what doesn't, and if you really want to know the truth, um, yes. Um, sometimes, you know, Mary would come in, and, you know, she she always would read what I'd written, or you know, sometimes she'd I'd finish a chapter and give it to her, and her first thing often was you know, you need to follow the advice that you're giving these other people. And so, yes, I feel like that I did have to grow. Um, and um, also the process of following, um, you know, I had to, on the science part, I had to follow every one of those. Um, I, I knew in general where I wanted to go because I knew about the articles. But when I had to reread them, and I know that you've had this same feeling, you reread them and all of a sudden you you thought you knew what they were saying, but yet it was more profound than you thought. And the thoughts that you carried in your brain and you were making decisions on were not quite, they're a little bit off. 
And so I had to do that several times and it changed sometimes the approach that I had to specific patients and specific medications. And how did you manage the process of writing this book as your caseload continues to increase? You're adding people to the memory and movement center. You're raising money for the center. You've got a really busy schedule and it sounds like a great idea to say, I'm going to write this book, but then you got to make the time to do it. Right. And actually uh, that is, that was the crucial thing that I, I, um, I took a month off in 2000 and uh, late 2000, summer of 2018. I, t- I took a sabbatical for a month because I found that um, with my schedule and getting home as late and, you know, we get 30 new patients a month. So things have grown dramatically. Uh, so I took a month off and I, um, and I, and I wrote um, the outline of it uh, at that time. And uh, my daughter, Leslie, uh, her closest friend, worked at the um, factory, foundry, I think, in New York City. It might be the factory, but it's a a place where editors, uh, there's multiple editors there and people go and, you know, ask them to help them. And um, she was the first person that thought that what I had written might have value to people and that they needed to read it. then um, what happened was about uh, a year later, um, I, I gave a talk at one of the churches and Ken Garfield came up to me and he said, uh, Chuck, if you ever want to write um, this book, he said, some of the stuff you said today, I thought was pretty important. He said, I'd love to help you. So what happened then was I called him and said, um, I, I, need, I need the structure. So every Thursday between 12 and 2, um, he and I would meet and I would write, um, uh, I would have an assignment, I would write um, a uh, half a chapter or, or multiple, uh, um, um, I, would, I, would, I would take a, uh, a section and I'd write it and then he would edit it. He would say, this works, this doesn't. Um, and, but that time structure and having those deadlines, I responded to. And he was also very kind uh, to me because you know, I have certain passions and certain things that come across and he was tolerant of that. And then, and as I said in the book, he tolerated my oddities uh, with grace. You know. Well, I think I remember in 2018 telling you, if you're going to write a book, you need to get a good editor. You need to get a good you you gave me that advice. Yeah. And, and I think it's important because, you know, you got to have someone looking in um, and giving you feedback and constructive feedback so that you can make it better. Okay. Last question. The time we have left. What do you hope, Chuck, uh, people are going to take away from this book, um, how they might use it uh, in their lives? Well, what I would say to that is that um, um, I, I, I covered this a little bit in the prologue, but, you know, we spend we spend decades, sometimes decades, preparing for our careers. And um, we uh, go away from home. We get graduate degrees. We spend hundreds of thousands of dollars doing it. And um, for instance, uh, for me, you know, I had 17 years of education after high school uh, before I got my first real paycheck. Uh, so, so here we have the, the, the chapter on time, a matter of time, puts out the, um, the numbers. And that means that we're probably going to live we're going to live, if we are in pretty good health from age 65, we have a 
55 or 60% chance of making it to 90. So we've got another lifetime out there, another lifetime. And, and at 65 in 2020, we are young and we are still very active. And so I want people to, to value that time. It's precious and it should be valued as much. And I, I said in the book, if not more than your career. Um, but the one thing you have to do is you, there, there has to be change going from your career into retirement. There has to be change. If you go in with the same goals and the uh, same attitude, then you're going to fail. Um, so I'd like people to understand that, that this is going to last a long time. It is extremely valuable. And um, I want to uh, eliminate that despair that comes from some people when they say, gosh, I haven't been happy since the last day I went to work. Yeah, that's great. Listener, the book is Much Abides, your survival guide for aging lives. There'll be show notes, and I've got information in the show notes about the Memory and Movement Center and uh, the kind of things that uh, they can help uh, with their patients and also caregivers and links to their website as well. So, uh, And don't forget, we're going to be over on Patreon taking a deeper dive in this topic of transitions. Chuck, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's podcast. Well, listen, um, you know, as I said, that uh, you you threw down the gauntlet on me. <laughs> and so I feel like this is uh, this is where I needed to be. Um, yeah, I can yeah. tell you how impressed I am with uh, what you're doing. Well, yeah, that's right. We, we we have a goal here to get people to write books. We just tell them you can only get on the show when you <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to Queen City Podcast Network.com.